This is Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us on the podcast series for Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. This season, you'll hear from 11 women across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. This week, we talk with Inez Tenenbaum. She was a two-term superintendent of education in South Carolina, and she served a four-year term as chairman of the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ms. Tenenbaum, would you define your overriding vision that has carried you through your entire career? I think I learned uh, early on in life that uh, service was joy. And I uh, had this poem that I always quoted by Tagore, who was the poet laureate of India and won the Nobel Peace Prize. And it summed up my uh, really vision of service. And it said, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and I saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. So it was always a joy to serve to me. And uh, my vision came from talking to people all over the state and then when I was in my national office and seeing the needs that were, were apparent and acting on those needs. And as part of that, uh, a lot of your work has revolved around children in education, uh, in Washington, when you were really working with children's products. How has that threaded through your career? Well, I was told many years ago by a friend who took me to lunch in my 20s, and she sat across the table. She was a good bit older than I was, and she said, Inez, you're here on a service mission, and I'll never forget her saying that. I never had heard it put quite like that, and so I really thought deeply about that, about service, and my love uh, of service was to protect and advocate for children and families. I started off as a first-grade school teacher, and then I let, went on to license Head Starts at the State Department of Social Services, worked for the legislature and in the committee uh, where I worked um, and directed those issues uh, about child advocacy were what we considered. And then I went on to be state superintendent of education. When I practiced law um, before becoming state superintendent, I worked to find children's issues. So it's been the thread. My venue has changed, but the thread throughout my life is being an advocate for children and families. And why is that so important, children and families? I think that uh, you have to have a lot of empathy to really want to zero in and focus on people who, who need you. And I like to uh, help people who couldn't help themselves, who did not have a voice and be their voice. And it was just very fulfilling to me, um, whether it's child abuse and neglect, foster care, uh, the education of children, uh, children who are incarcerated, uh, children who come in contact with um, uh, defective products. Uh, that was the thread that ran through my life was protecting children and their families. What was the turning point in your life that most contributed to your success? Uh, probably deciding to go to law school in my 30s. I had uh, taught school, I had worked for the Department of Social Services, I had been the director of research for a major committee in the House, but I always had it in the back of my mind that I needed a law degree to be a much more effective advocate. So in my 30s, I decided to leave my job and take out my state retirement and it paid my first year of law school. But that's a big change and that's a big challenge to totally reinvent yourself. It was, it was very risky. 
Uh, my mother wasn't pleased, uh, <laughs> having been a child of the Depression. And when she heard I was pulling out my state retirement to go back to law school in my 30s, and a friend of mine who was already a lawyer said, I can't believe you're doing this. You'll be 35 years old when you graduate. And I told her, I'll be 35 years old anyway. I may as well have a law degree. <laughs> and, uh, and it was that law degree that really gave me the tools to be a more effective advocate and to have more confidence. Because once I understood the law and how uh, the law could protect children and families, it took me to many different venues. And so when I was elected state superintendent of education, it really took me back to my roots as an educator. Starting so off. that combination of law and then having been a teacher. Right. And, but the law opened doors for the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And we had such a large agenda, nationally and internationally, to do when I got to Washington. But I don't think I'd have been nearly as effective had I not had my law degree from the University of South Carolina. Let's talk for a moment about your time in Washington where you were working with consumer groups, with business groups, oversight with Congress. And when we see what's happening in Washington, it had to be a, a tough, challenging time. It's well, the toughest part was commuting every week to Washington. Uh, my husband would put me on the plane and he dropped me off at the airport at five. I'd get on a six o'clock flight. I'd fly to Washington and work all week, fly home. And that back and forth and being apart was probably the, it was the largest challenge. The other part was challenging, but interesting. And I wasn't afraid of a fight. And uh, what the good thing about coming into the Consumer Product Safety Commission at that time was Congress had just passed the year before major legislation that revamped the whole agency, gave the agency more funding, and set requirements in the law for the CPSC to write rules about. For example, what brought on the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act of 2008, which was the law that I implemented, was the fact that um, high levels of lead were found in children's toys. It was in all the media uh, the year before I was nominated, and I remember paying close attention to the fact that they found lead in children's toys, toys that were being mouthed and by children, which was very toxic, and uh, lead poisoning can kill children. It can also bring about uh, severe brain deficiencies. So I came in at the cusp of when that law was passed almost unanimously by the House and the Senate in a bipartisan effort to protect children. So that was the first thing we did was come up with uh, testing and certification of children's products. So a toy or a child's product cannot be sold in the United States or imported into the United States unless it's tested and certified. We came out with the strongest crib standard in the world. If you go into a, a store now that sells cribs or any kind of baby infant durable equipment, you will find that uh, the standards are greatly increased to protect children. But when you came into the agency, the budget had been cut. There were also business interests who don't like regulation. They did not like the rules. The business didn't. But the fact that Congress passed almost unanimously this Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act of 2008 uh, gave me the impetus to say to business, look, Congress passed this almost unanimously, then we have to implement it. And the fact that I invited business in at all times, my door was open to talk about their concerns. We had hearings. When we developed a rule, it was always put out for public comment. Business had a chance to comment and some, many times to improve what the staff had developed. but. Um, 
I found that by working with business, with consumer groups, with the um, standards-making bodies in the United States and the staff at the CPSC, we came out with some really good products in terms of the rules that we developed. So we probably put out more rules than any agency had ever promulgated. Uh, uh, that agency had promulgated in the history of the agency because Congress gave us that law and the tools to do so. And they increased the budget of the CPSC by almost um, doubled it. Has that continued since you It left? has not been cut uh, since I left. I think that regardless of the party you're in, if, if you enrage the consumers and show that you are not protecting the consumers, then you lose. Uh, that is not a good stand to take. Um, you have to, there are some things that are happening now that would not have happened under my watch, but I think the press will call out a chairman or the CPSC and do nothing but relentlessly hammer you if you show that you are not on the consumer side. And that may have to happen. But right now I'm, I'm watching it, but I don't think that, I don't see the agency backslide in any large degree. What or who gave you the most inspiration in your career? I'd have to say my mother. My mother was an elementary school teacher. She came out of the Depression. You know, she was part of those women that did it all. Taught school, taught Sunday school, made my clothes, canned food, cooked. I mean, I don't know how those women did it. And they never complained. That's just part of being a wife and homemaker and mother. And they were just, uh, her work ethic was unsurpassed. Uh, I never saw her, I don't ever remember my mother taking a nap ever. She was always doing something and always engaged and a good neighbor, a good friend. If anyone was sick or there was a death in the family, she was the first one there with her cake or her casserole. I mean, she was just a, a strong leader in a very quiet way. And then how did that carry forward with your career? Well, she was not a complainer and neither were the women of my community that were in her generation. They were very strong. They had a core sense of values. There was no gray area. They knew the difference in right and wrong, but they were very understanding people if there was something in the community, a tragedy. Um, they were just good, kind, strong women. So when I was on that plane every day to Washington and flying back, I didn't complain. I felt very fortunate to have the opportunity. So many other people would have loved to have um, had a position in the Obama administration or any other administration. I mean, the mile, the lines are miles long of people who would love to serve. So I was always filled with gratitude that I was asked, uh, even though it was a real effort for four and a half years to, to do the job. And it was not easy. Uh, there are five commissioners, lots of internal struggle in the promulgation of rules, a lot of personalities that clashed, and uh, you just had to, keep a focus and a vision on uh, this is the law, I'm going to implement it, and I'm going to make the world of uh, consumer products safer for children. And I did it, and I had wonderful staff. I think I was just really blessed with some incredible people, some of whom were from South Carolina and moved up there to work with me at the CPSC. What would your advice be for young women today? Well, I am um, 
often asked by uh, young people to have lunch with them to talk about their career, vis visions of their career, or whether they should go to law school, whether they should teach school. So I listen, but I really, through the conversation, can pick up what their strong interests are. And I'll say, what really makes you happy? What do you love doing? And they'll tell me you know, what their interest is. And I'll say, well, then find a job that focuses on that interest, and then you'll never work a day in your life. Because if you find your mission, uh, and your purpose, then it just fulfills you so greatly uh, that you will have a wonderful career. But don't choose something because the money or this is what your father did or this is what your mother suggested. Do something that you like. It's that passion. It's a passion. What is your hope for South Carolina? I hope that we continue to have leadership that will focus on children. I get very concerned when we see education being cut or our teachers not being appreciated and valued. Right now we have a terrible teacher shortage and that, that concerns me greatly that we don't have the numbers of teachers available to be in the classroom. Um, child abuse and neglect, uh, you know, opioid addictions that affect children in the household, those are just issues I think about daily and think about um, the quality of life of our children and whether someone's really trying to protect them as much as they, they should be. The other issue that we are seeing over the past year or so is the Me Too movement mm -hmm. uh, among women. How has that changed gender issues? You know, those issues sometimes are cyclical. Every few decades, something like this will happen, the Me Too. Uh, the women's movement brought a lot, you know, when I started working, the South Carolina legislature was considering rather to vote for the ERA. It's a big issue. But issues uh, seem to come in, in uh, certain decades. And I think they, it's healthy to, for the issues to come up again. But um, I think women are stronger and better positions now to just resist any kind of harassment at the workplace. And um, when I was coming along, if um, you know someone was in, acted inappropriately, we went to the, the boss and told them or told them not to do it again. I mean, you know, just speak up. Find your voice. Don't, you don't have to put up with this. Well, you know? that, that is the question about the voice, and does this whole movement give voice to women in a stronger way, in, in a sense? I think women had the voice. I mean, think where we've come since I was born in 1951. Think about where women have come in terms of their profession, their, uh, their success. Uh, the number of leaders now, uh, it's it needs to improve, but women should, uh, should know from a very early age what's appropriate workplace behavior and what's appropriate uh, and how to handle it. And you, I, I think that that needs to be taught uh, early on so you don't have to depend on a movement to give you a voice. You know innately uh, to speak up for yourself. I wanted to talk for a moment about education and your education coming up. Who was your favorite teacher? I grew up in a town with 500 people, and we had one school and one class one uh, per grade. So in the uh, fifth grade, my mother taught me all year long. She was the fifth grade school teacher. So whether it was her daughters or her, you know, her nieces or nephews, that Miss Moore was Mrs. Moore was the fifth grade teacher, and that's who I had. So she's my favorite. She's your favorite, and, and she's your inspiration. She, and when she, when school was over, she never once ever, I can't ever remember her saying, "Did you get your homework?" So when we got home from school, it was not discussed. She had another role, 
And you know, when and it was just and something if something happened at school, it wasn't discussed at home, it was left at school. I thought she was very wise in how she handled that. How did you go about getting the the job that you have now and that's the legal profession? Well, like I said, um, in my thirties I decided that um, I'd worked for the legislature been the director of the Medical, Military, Public and Municipal Affairs Committee for six years. And all of my friends um, at the legislature, either staff or, or members, uh, the people with whom I was the closest, were lawyers. And so I really admired their intellect and their ability to um, analyze social policy. So I've decided at 32 to, to leave the house and to go back to, to law school. So I'm with the Weich Law Firm now, and it's um, a small firm, which I like. Uh, it's in Greenville and Columbia. Uh, and I can practice my consumer product safety work as well as my education policy law uh, at Weich, so I'm very happy. You talked about the travel back and forth between South Carolina and Washington. How do you handle work-life balance issues that so many women face, whether it's travel, whether it's being away, working long hours away from family? Well, my law practice now allows me to have my own clients, and so I'm able to um, balance that work. And um, I'll take on a, a project, and when it's finished, I might have time afterwards. I always block out the holidays, and I always pretty much block out the weekends. It's very rare for me to work on weekends. Now, I remember when I was an associate starting off, I used to have to work on weekends and late hours, but I don't have to do that anymore, and I think that's, that's a good thing. And that's the rewards of uh, working hard all your life. You get to pick and choose what you want to do at this age. But it's, uh, I have wonderful clients. It's fulfilling, so that's where I am now. So it's the best of both. It really is, but you have to build in play. If you work all the time, you ruin your health, you ruin your family life, and you're just no fun. I mean, you have to play, and you have to have downtime. Uh, and you really do have to have a balanced life. Even when I was in Washington, when I could get home on the, when I did come home on the weekends, uh, sometimes I had to work if I had a big hearing the, the next week, but a lot of times I just left it all in Washington, flew home and took the weekend off and then uh, spent longer hours at the job when I got back up there. How would you define leadership? I think a good leader has a vision based on looking at all the issues and the needs and can take people beyond where they're comfortable to a place that improves the situation. And what about the qualities of creativity, of public service? How does that play into leadership? I attended the Center for Creative Leadership, and I also worked with the legislature to fully fund the opportunity for all our superintendents, district superintendents, and almost all of our principals to attend that program in Greensboro, North Carolina. And that program really helps leaders understand that leadership is learned, it's not just innate. And a good leader is someone who surrounds herself with other leaders, so that everyone is working at full capacity and you just exponentially get more work done. But if you surround yourself with weak people so you can be the, the big leader, then I just don't think you have a very well-run agency. Uh, so I always look for the strongest leaders I could find and put them over a certain division. And then uh, we, we collaborated, we made sure we were on the right path, that we understood what the issues were that we were addressing, and then I let them go. Uh, I, in Washington, I was always complimented on finding some of the brightest, strongest young minds to come in and work with me. And they were phenomenal because we, that's why we were able to accomplish so much and get so much work done is I um, 
found some excellent young uh, lawyers who wanted to come with me, and they were terrific. You were a two-term superintendent of education in South Carolina. What is your view now of the state of education in the state? Well, in South Carolina, we have great periods of focus on education, and then we see it slide back. Uh, I think the leadership at the State Department of Education is good now. I really do. But I sometimes think the legislature, um, uh, well, we have some good leaders in legislature. I can't say all of that. I know the House, when the Abbeville lawsuit was finished, the House really worked hard on a a full report on what we could do to help South Carolina's rural schools, but then the Senate didn't pass it. Our buildings in the rural areas are deplorable. The House put in $200 million. The Senate wouldn't pass it. So you can't just lump them all together, uh, but we've got some strong leaders in the Senate who've been uh, very much advocates in the Senate, but we, sometimes you just don't have enough votes. So uh, the question of equity in education in rural, poor areas still It still is a large issue. Now, I was fortunate when I came into office, uh, Jim Hodges was elected the same time I was, and Jim told me early on, I want education to be one of my top priorities, and he won the education lottery. Um, Jim helped me, along with um, our late state treasurer, Grady Patterson. The three of us advocated for a state bond bill so that we could put money in the school districts to build new school buildings. And the legislature passed $750 million in state bonds to help the districts build and um, build new schools. It was phenomenal. Uh, I think 140 new schools got built during that uh, period of time when I was state superintendent of education. But that was leadership. And when the House passed the 200 million bond uh, bill so that we could go into the poorest districts like Allendale and Hampton County and Dillon and uh, build new schools, the Senate wouldn't go along with it. So I don't know what it'll take sometimes to get people to realize you have to have state leadership. But I feel like um, really the last governor who really focused on education was Jim Hodges. It was not a priority for the governor since then. And I'm hopeful whomever wins in this general election that they will put education as a number one priority on their agenda. Because the state superintendent can't do it alone. You need a strong leader at the top of the, of the state. And finally, one last question on leadership. This is a an initiative that looks at women and vision. Why is leadership so important? You've touched on it, but why is it so important to this state? Well, the Bible said where there's no vision, the people will perish. And that's the true with leadership. If you're, if you're not as good, you know, if you're working in a school and you have an inept principal, or if you're in a state and you don't have good leadership at the top and in the legislature, nothing gets done. So you have to have someone who has the courage to, number one, surround themselves with good people, to start the initiatives where you listen to people and have hearings and you gather information, you come up with the plan, and then you execute that plan. Leadership is everything. Uh, it is absolutely what makes state government work, the national government work, a, a company work, leadership or university work. It is just absolutely essential to be successful, to have good leadership skills and not be afraid to, to take a risk. 
uh, not be afraid to get out on a limb. Uh, you just can't do the easy thing. And I find that some people think leadership is punitive and that to be a good leader, your staff has to fear you. I've never thought that. I think it's better to be loved than feared. And because you get people who really put everything on the line if they come to work and enjoy working with you and you give them the ability to be a leader. And that's what I've always practiced is let people lead, you be the first among equals, and let um, the whole leadership team carry out um, the vision of what you're trying to accomplish. Thank you, Inez Tenenbaum. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. Subscribe to this podcast on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, or wherever you find podcasts to hear the rest of stories from this season. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer. Tyora Moody is web manager. Special thanks to Bobby Kennedy, director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>